Let me ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we had a few-week uh, hiatus from the Benchmarks of Discipleship series because we had uh, the Spread the Word team do their report and missionary reports, and so uh, we've taken a little bit of a break, but we're uh, diving back in. Uh, remember, in case, in case you weren't here, or uh, uh, just by way of reminder, okay, it's benchmarks of discipleship, and the benchmark language I've chosen so that we can think about how we know if we're fulfilling the mission to make and mature disciples. What if a, if a disciple is made, what does that look like? If a, a disciple is maturing, what does that look like in terms of trying to answer it biblically? What might be some benchmarks or mile markers or characteristics? Okay, so you can, if you don't like benchmarks, pick your own word. Just every time I say benchmarks, you substitute the other one in your head. Because as long as we get the concept. The concept is that there should be progress in the Christian life and the church exists to help encourage and strengthen that, right? We're supposed to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them all that Christ has commanded, right? That they would obey those things. And so what would that look like? So far, we've looked at four of them, and each one has three sort of, cl- it's a cluster of three, because three's the perfect number. I guess it's not really. Seven is supposed to be, right? But three's the number of God. So we're just going with that one, all right? Just we'll work at it. Trusting, belonging, growing, and serving. All right, three characteristics of trusting is that you have a new Lord and new life and new love. All right, if you've actually trusted in Jesus Christ, you've confessed him as your Lord. He now... Uh, is master over your life, right? You don't accept Jesus and then sometime later make him your Lord. You come to Christ at the very start with an acknowledgement that he is Lord. Confess, right, with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Romans 10 says. And, and Romans 14, Romans 14 picks up on that, that every aspect of our lives must be lived under the lordship of Christ. So we have a new Lord. A new life has been produced within us through regeneration. And that also is marked by a new love for God and for those who are born of God. All right, so that's trusting. Belonging is identifying with Jesus Christ through baptism. Right, you, Because you've confessed him as your Lord, you openly declare yourself to be a follower of Christ through baptism. You're identifying with him. That's why you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at the Great Commission, baptized in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts. You, you essentially are publicly declaring that your trust is in Christ. It's the evidence of, of your faith and commitment to Christ. You identify with God's people through membership. God saves us to put us into a fellowship of people who are worshipers of Jesus Christ. We're not saved in isolation. We are saved individually, but not in isolation. We're saved by being brought into fellowship with Christ, being placed in his body by the Spirit, which should correspond to us our participation in a local assembly, a body of believers 
where, where we identify with Christ. We gather each week to call on the name of the Lord, to use the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's what marks us off. We're worshipers of God through Jesus Christ. We assemble with his people. That's why we're not supposed to forsake that assembling. All right, identify with Christ through baptism, with his people through membership, and through his mission by participating in it. Christ said he was going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if we've actually identified with Christ, then we identify with what he's doing in this world. And what he's doing in this world uh, chiefly is in the local assembly of believers. It's the pillar and support of the truth. The, uh, the reality of it, and again, this is uh, sometimes doesn't, um, doesn't mesh well with the kind of culture that uh, American Christianity has created. Uh, we tend to equate church with Christians. And therefore, anything Christians are doing is actually what the church is doing, right? You have people sort of just generically say, come on, church, to all the Christians everywhere as if that's actually what the church is. But the church is actually a body of believers who are are committed to one another and committed to the work of Christ. And so the center of what God is doing in the time between the first and second comings of Christ is actually in the church, in the advance of the church, the mission of the church. Doesn't mean God's not doing other things. He certainly is because God's in control of everything, right? He puts up one and takes down another. He rules over all of creation, but, but, but you and I are not responsible for everything that God is doing. We are actually responsible to be the instrument that is the church, which is commissioned to go and make disciples and, and form assemblies, right? Baptism is an ordinance of the church. So if we go make disciples, baptizing them, that means we're incorporating them into the assembly. And, and you can take that teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. And when you see Ephesians 4, when Christ ascended, what did he give for the teaching in the church? Right? He gave gifted leaders and gifts within the body so that speaking truth to one another, we would grow up into him. I mean, it's great that we have lots of resources, right? It's great that you can, you know, you, uh, you can download sermons. You can hear the best preachers on the planet in, you know, in, in just a few clicks, but that's not actually the center of what God is doing, right? If you're not, committed to the propagation of the mission of Jesus Christ in building his church, and he does that via the establishment of local assemblies, then you really haven't identified with Christ, right? You're, you're sort of hanging back, wanting to reap some benefits from Jesus, but not really participate in what he's doing, okay? So trusting, belonging, growing. Uh, three things that I focused on there was accepting our responsibility for growth, that we need to be active and I would even say aggressive about growth so that, so that, um, we're not treating our spiritual growth as a passive thing that, that just sort of like happens to us from outside of us. 
but that actually we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so, so is a person committed to their responsibility to grow from spiritual infant to maturity? Right? If someone's not committed to do that, then we're not succeeding in, in their life, right? We're talking about a benchmark of discipleship. We should be working to see them become active and aggressive about growth. They want to grow in Christ. The resources that God has pl- supplied for those are, are his grace, the word of his grace, the throne of grace, the gifts of grace that he's bestowed in the church to contribute to our edification so we grow up in him. And, and if we're really committed to that growth, it's really a life of repentance and renewal. This is a rhetorical question. Okay, so don't raise your hand. I'm going to assume everybody in this room could raise it. How many of you sinned this week? How many of you fell short of God's will and the pursuit of it with the kind of diligence we talked about? Every one of us. So if we're really committed to growth, we'll be committed to repentance. We'll be committed to a spiritual renewal. We'll be, we'll be quick to acknowledge our sin before God, knowing that he promises to forgive us and to cleanse us. Right? Um, J.I. Packer used to talk about the life of growth as being downward in repentance. Right? The, the, the more we grow in Christ, the more aware we are actually of God's glory and holiness and our sinfulness. We don't become less concerned about sin the more we grow. Growth isn't forgetting that we're sinners. It's recognizing it and turning to God's remedy. Right? It's, it's actually about us being serious about sin so that we can grow as God wants us to pursue sanctification, like Hebrews talks about, to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1. So that's growing. The last one we looked at was serving. And the three things that we focused on there, that the source of our service must be uh, Christ's love uh, in us and through us. Right? The reason we serve is because of love. And, and the point I was trying to make, and I've tried to remake a couple times quickly, is that, that, that we, if I could put it this way, right, we, we really need to concentrate on the fountain from which service flows. And that's cultivating our love for God And if we're cultivating our love for God, then it will produce love for God's children, which will mean we'll move in service toward them, right? It's, it, it really is, uh, it's that. It's like Hebrews 6.10 says, right? The love for his name in ministering to and still ministering to the saints. It's love for his name that compels it. When we are not serving out of love for God and love for those God loves is when we, we start to actually become, um, we can get burned out about it. We can, we can actually subtly 
get a self-focus that starts to get potentially disappointed or dissatisfied, maybe even angry if we don't get the approval that we sought, right? Because in that approval might be in form of gratitude. Like, hey, I just did this for you and you don't care. You're not thanking me. I mean, you should be patting me on the back, not criticizing. You should just say thank you. Right At that point, we're actually showing that we're doing it for some gain for ourselves rather than doing it as an expression of our love for God. That we're doing it for him. Right? We're doing it because we understand how much he has loved us and we understand how much he loves our brothers and sisters in Christ. He purchased the church with the blood of Christ. Right, that's, that's how much God cares for those people. So you ought to care for them as well. Right? I ought to care for them as well. So, so it's, it's, it has to be sourced in the love of Christ. The substance of that service is tied to the gifts that Christ has given to the church. It, uh, I think we should be ready to serve wherever there is an opportunity to do so. Right? We should engage I'll use the language in Titus 3, we should engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. So when you see a pressing need, you should engage in what will meet that need because that's described as being fruitful in Titus chapter 3. But we also should recognize that God has given us uh, resources by which we might bear fruit and and uh, and flourish really in our ministry because it's God working through us, and so we should uh, we should be uh, serving across the board, but excelling in our commitment to those areas where we know God has uniquely gifted us to serve, right? And and devoting our energies to that. Then the third was the strength of that is actually the work of the Spirit, since He's the the, the giver of the gifts, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, right? The gifts are a manifestation of the Spirit. I mean, that's, that's a, a phrase that probably should like sit in our heads and hearts, right? The, the use of our gifts is actually a manifestation of the Spirit. He's given the gifts. He empowers the gifts. He accomplishes the work through them. And when we sort of set, a, set that aside and reduce it to very manageable operations and functions, what I think we're doing at that point, if I could borrow language of Scripture, is quenching the Spirit. Right? That's what 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about in the context of the Spirit's work through people speaking on behalf of God. He says, do not quench the Spirit. We should want the Spirit to use us as an instrument in the building up of the body of Christ, which means we want to be dependent on him and prayerful to that end. So that what is accomplished goes beyond what our human capability is. Right? If it's, it's one thing, I'll just apply it to, to myself because it's easier to do that. Right. So, so 
when I stand up to teach and proclaim God's word, I can do so in word only, I think, based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Or I can do it in the power of the Spirit. Right? There's, there's two ways to do it. I can speak as if I'm just speaking, or I can speak as if it's the very utterances of God, First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. I can organize and work and prepare an interesting message, but if it's going to accomplish spiritual good in people's lives, that's going to be the work of the Spirit. Right? I, I have no power to flip a switch inside you. I can't actually change your mind to conformity to Christ. I can't infuse you with grace. All I can do is carry out the responsibility I'm given between God and you in the teaching and proclamation of the word. So I have to look at it as something for which I might be equipped, but I am not fully able. And only God can do it. And when we stop recognizing that the things that need to be done in and through the congregation of God's people cannot be done apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, when we, when we forget that, we basically become any kind of normal human operation, right? I mean, what separates us from the Mormons? I mean, lots of people, well, they're, they're growing. They're, they're, I mean, look at how big they are and how organized they are. And look at how much they're advancing. I mean, is, are we just doing the same thing, only we're a Christian version of it? I mean, is, is building a church just adopting a good franchise model and executing it? I mean, or, or is it some kind of uniquely spiritual endeavor that requires God to do something past our ability? Because giving life to the dead is outside of the ability of anybody in this room. Right? Rescuing sinners from the way of destruction is past our capability. So we have to realize our utter dependence in serving on the work of the Spirit of God to enliven and energize us and empower us for the task. All right, so there's 13 sermons wrapped up in... 10, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, all right? So let's do one more in 15 minutes. All right, the next cluster is under the word sharing, sharing. That if we really have come to know Christ and are following Christ, then our, mar our life will be marked by an open-handedness uh, with what we've been entrusted with. And there's going to be three components as I have all the way through it and, it. and we'll look at them, Lord willing, over three weeks. The first of which is the issue of generosity. And what I want to do is look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in sort of a survey fashion. But let me just anchor it in a couple of other texts so that you would see this as a benchmark of discipleship. 
right? And I've said this a couple of times in this series, right? You're taking concepts, so there's just lots of passages you could you could root it in. And I really wrestled with rooting it in Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about what it means that we've learned Christ and that we put off the old man, put on the new man, and be renewed in the spirit of mind. Because one of the first things that Paul deals with there is, he says, let, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let, let him labor with his hands. And then it says, so that he will have to share with him who's in need. Right, So the mark of actually being a follower of Christ and having experienced regeneration so that you've put off the old and put on the new is, and here's the title of the sermon if you ever want to track it down on Sermon Audio, right? From Ephesians 4, from grabbers to givers. Right, That's what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus Christ, that you've had your heart transformed from being a person who thinks life is about grabbing and accumulating and holding on to, that actually you live in such a way that you are seeing needs and giving to meet those needs, which means, right, necessarily implies that you're not consuming everything you have. Because if you have something to give away, it means you haven't used it all up, right? That in fact, you're living in a way that isn't measuring your life by what you can obtain and get and accumulate. You actually are seeing what you have as a resource to be used for God, right? And so Ephesians 4 would say that, but also I know you could probably immediately start to think of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is confronting the people of his day and he's talking about laying up treasure in heaven. And, and he ties that to your eye being e e evil or generous. If, if it's evil and tightened down, it fills you with darkness, right? But if you have a liberal or generous eye, you're full of light. And then he says, no one can serve two masters, right? You cannot serve God and mammon. So that's why it's a benchmark of a person. Are they really obeying, following Christ? Someone who has not uh, learned the lessons of, of generosity rooted in the work of Christ to us is, is, um, at least a baby Christian. Probably a disobedient Christian. Right? They're not responding to the work of God to move them to have his heart. And, and that sort of leads me into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is a, a, an, a, an extensive passage about this issue. Just quickly, historical context, Paul is collecting an offering for the believers in Judea who are, who are facing hardship. This offering is mentioned in Romans chapter 15 and verse 26. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3. Right? So it, it actually, it, and it's, and it's the record of Paul taking it back to Jerusalem is in, in the book of Acts, right? So, so here's a scenario where you have 
a passage that is, Paul is addressing the givers about an offering that he also talks to the Romans about and that he talks to the Corinthians in the first letter and we see unfolding in the book of Acts, all right? So it's, it's a wonderful occasion where you have your, your, your passages of the scripture harmonizing together. Paul has already uh, been with the Macedonians. So think Church of Philippi, right? He's with the Macedonians. He's going to be going by the Corinthians, and they have indicated that they want to participate in this offering. So he sends a letter forward to them to get them ready to actually act on what they've expressed a desire to do, right? They've said, Paul, we want to participate in this and so Paul sends messengers with this second letter, right? So Paul's sending the letter to them, covers a bunch of stuff, but part of what it covers is, is this issue of this offering and these gifts. He wants them now to follow through on what they have said that they would do. The, the, if I could take like, so the overarching theme of of these two chapters, I want to just state it, and I'm going to show you in the text where I see that, and then start to move uh, to to us in terms of this issue. Right, the the proof of Christian love through generosity should be done eagerly, diligently, and bountifully. Right, the proof of Christian love should be done through generosity, should be done eagerly, diligently, and bountifully. Why do I say the word proof? Look at verse 8 of chapter 8. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also, right? So you've said you love. This offering is going to give you an opportunity to prove that you love, right? Look at chapter 8 and verse 24, Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. That's 8.24. Then look at 9.13. Because of the proof given by this service or ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality or generosity of your contribution to them and to all. So, so here's, here's a key point in that, that verse, uh, in verse, uh, 13. I notice what he says, because of the proof given by this, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. All right. So, so think about what Paul's saying here. This offering is going to be a testimony to the believing Jews in Judea of your confession of the gospel, right? And, and in that, I think it's at least in twofold way in terms of how the text would unfold it. It will be a confession of your gospel by virtue of your unity with God's people, right? You care about them like the scriptures say you would care about them. Remember, go all the way back to trusting a new love, and in 1 John chapter 3, he says, if you see your brother in need and you have the resource to meet that need and you basically close your heart to them, how can you say the love of God dwells in you? So here's what this is. These Gentile believers in Corinth 
are going to open up their heart to the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea, and it's going to be this clear, resounding testimony of the fact that they have confessed the gospel. But also, I think it goes back to that Matthew 6 passage, right? If, if, uh, if the gospel doesn't cause you to start laying up treasure in heaven, there's a problem. And that problem is in the words of Jesus. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I mean, think about it. You have confessed in the gospel that heaven is your home. Christ is your Lord. And then the use of your resources has no indication of that. You're not laying up treasure in heaven. You're not living for things that won't rust or corrupt or be stolen away. You're living only for here. There's something contradictory about that confession, right? I mean, it's like somebody who says, X matters to me more than anything else. And then you watch their life and they never do anything about X. They're never seeking X. They're never pursuing X. They're not ever acting as if X matters. You'd be start to go, something's wrong. Some, something's not right. So when these believers at Corinth actually pour out generosity for the needs of the saints in Judea, it actually is a confirmation that they have confessed the gospel. They believe the gospel because they're laying up treasure where it cannot be touched or taken away. Proof of Christian love through generosity. Look at the verse eight. Okay, verse four. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 4. Right? The Macedonians were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And that, that's important because uh, he, he is very clear, right, in verse 2, that they have deep poverty. <laughs> I mean, the Philippian church is an awesome church, right? I mean, he describes them as deep poverty, in 2 Corinthians 8, he talks about them begging to participate in this offering. He says in Philippians chapter 4 that when Paul left Philippi and went to Thessalonica, no other church participated in giving to meet his needs but the Philippians who did it more than once. I mean, these were poor, poor people who begged for an opportunity to give and did so. Right. And that ought to just, you know, send torpedoes into our excuses about not having anything to give. I mean, they, they had poverty, yet they still found a way to be generous in it. They cared about what God was doing in it. Look at verse one of chapter nine. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. It's, it's a, an act of generosity and kindness toward them. In verse 12 of chapter 9, it's supplying the needs of the saints. And in 9.13, it's a contribution to them and to all. So, so this was a generosity. It was something that was overflowing from them to others in order to meet those needs. So 
It should be done eagerly, diligently, and bountifully. Let me just show you in the text those. All right, look at 8.8. All right, it, it's, I'm saying this, I'm not speaking this as a command. So this is not something that Paul is trying to compel them to do by way of command. He is trying to persuade them and urge them. Look at 10 through 12. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was a readiness to desire it, there so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does. That readiness is the eagerness. Chapter 9, verse 2 he uses the word readiness again. In chapter 9, verse 7, he says, Each one must do this just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it should be something that flows out of an, a readiness and eagerness to do it, rather than a, I mean, certainly not doing it to be seen of people. Matthew 6 would make clear that that's not legitimate, right? That's... Uh, and plan to say this, but that, that's why we don't, uh, we don't make much of givers around here. Because the, the point, uh, as a shepherd would be, why would, why would I want to rob you of your eternal reward so you can have your name on some plaque in the garden of gratitude or whatever? Right? Or the tree of thankfulness. Boy, if you'll donate X, we'll put your name on this plaque. Essentially, we'd be saying to you, and there's your eternal reward. And that tree is going to burn down <laughs> and consume. The garden of gratitude is going to be replaced by a new creation. Those, those kinds of motivations are not biblically sound motivations. It should be a readiness to give because of the worthiness of Christ and of his work and of his people. And if you have to, if you have to strong arm people into giving, right, then, then you're, something's wrong in the discipleship process. I mean, I, I mean, I came to this conclusion 40 some years ago. I was, uh, actually I helped write a Sunday school curriculum for a, a friend of mine was on staff at a church where they each had a stewardship month and they'd push together curriculum. And so I, I was in seminary and I helped write a chapter. And as I started to find out what they were doing, I mean, really, and then actually I had to write a couple when I was an assistant pastor for, for that kind of a thing. I mean, really, they were sort of like fleece the flock efforts. I'm literally the past, not first of Detroit. I'll make it. The other church, right, that I was helping this friend write for. I mean, here's what the pastor did. He actually calculated what, uh, what someone would be receiving on welfare the number of members in their church, what they'd be receiving on welfare and what their income would be if they tithed off of it to beat the, beat the church into giving more, right? Because if you took all, I mean, it's, and it's easy to manipulate it, right? Because 630 members, um, households, you, know, you, you all of a sudden you take all 630 and you multiply those out by welfare when in fact it would be household. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can do it, but the bottom line is at the end of the month, you're going to put the screws on everybody to try and get the budget up. And it's just ridiculous. 
right? If you have to treat people like goats to get them to give like sheep, there's a problem, right? It should be the outworking of the grace of God, which makes you ready and eager to, to give, to, to be uh, like God in that regard. It should be diligent. Look at 811. All right, he wants them, we just read it, he wants them to uh, not just have a desire, but a readiness, finish doing it also. And that's why he says in 9.3, he's writing because he wants them to be prepared. He wants them to be ready in 9.5. And, and, and here's what I would say. I think sometimes this is a problem for believers, right? Because it's not front and center in your commitments, you're not as careful and diligent about it as you should be, right? You're more, uh, you know, sort of just carried by the moment instead of by the commitment, right? And, and he wants them to not just have good desires and intentions, but actually to follow through on them in order to do the thing that, that, that God's, uh, join the work that God is doing and bountifully. Look at the, the language that's throughout these two chapters on that. In 8.2, it's the wealth of their liberality. In 8.20, this generous gift. 9.5, bountiful gift. 9.11, all liberality. 9.13, the liberality of your contribution. But notice, especially in verse 6, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Why is he saying that? Because he wants them to sow bountifully, right? It should be, it should be uh, not meager, right? It should be abundant, generous uh, giving from God's people. And, and that, that's because the kind of giving he's talking about starts with the grace of God. Look at 8.1. Right, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So he's going to describe their generosity as the result of the grace of God. That's why I think the fleece, the flock methods are so appalling. Right? If someone, I mean, there are people like this. I mean, I, I know churches have gone into building programs and they hire companies to come in and they've got all these ways in which you can, you know, you can put on the appeals and the pressure and get, you know, we'll, we'll guarantee we'll increase your giving by X amount. I mean, there's entire companies out there that will sell those to you, right? Because they want, they think it's a matter of mechanics, and Paul says it's actually a matter of the grace of God. So, you know, you know, to me, it's always been about, boy, if our church is healthy and people are responding to God's work in their life, this will flow. Right? If you've been around for a long time, the number of sermons you heard me preach about giving is probably pretty low. Because if your heart is where it should be and the grace of God is operating in there, it will open up your hands, right? It's the work of God's grace in a person's life. And that's, that's what uh, 8.1 talks about, but look at 9.8. Same thing I should say in 
in 8-9, but look at 9-8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. The very capability to give is the work of God's grace. And then look at verse 14. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Right? So, so here's a church, a group of people in Macedonia, another one at Corinth who've been urged to give eagerly and diligently and bountifully, not by some kind of, uh, some kind of pressure on them, but as an evidence and an outworking of God's grace, that God has produced this in their hearts. He's supplied the resources for them to give. And, and when they do, others see the grace of God in them, right? They see what God has done, and it's a testimony to the grace of God, which is, is what should be important in our lives. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8, because it's called a gracious work. Even the giving is a gracious thing. So we urged Titus, as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness, in the love we inspired in you, see that you also abound in this gracious work also. And that's why verse nine or three of chapter nine talks about the Macedonians giving of their own accord. And that's why nine seven says that you should purpose in your heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. It's an issue of grace, right? That's, um, I mean, I don't have time to, to go deeply into this, but, um, and I know some of you won't agree with me on it, but you've never heard me preach about tithing because tithing is a part of the Mosaic law. We're in the New Testament, and we're to give graciously, which to me would mean um, we're not setting arbitrary percentages on it, that we have a heart that wants to pour out what we have for the work of God, right? Because technically, if you did the Old Testament system, it really adds up to about 23% of their income anyway right, because there were different ties that they had. But it, it was a legal system, right? They were under the Mosaic law and required to give it. And, and, and the pattern in the New Testament is that our giving is gracious. It's the work of God's grace in us, and it's the overflowing expression of that grace in gratitude. And that... That in no way, I mean, if the first person, first thing you think is, oh, I don't have to give 10%, I can cut back, then you're missing the whole point, right? If, if you've been giving 10% because you feel like you have a compulsion, I've got to do this, right? I have to meet this law, then you don't get the point, right? It's the work of God's grace in us as an outgrowth of our personal surrender. Look at 8.5, 8.5, about the Macedonians. 
And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So it really was their surrender to the Lord that produced this generosity. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to say four things quickly about this. I think if we're going to improve in your generosity and we're marked by the kind of generosity that God wants us to have, it should be deliberate. 9-7 says purposed, has purposed in his heart. Do you see this as something about which you have resolve and purpose that you want to be invested in the things of God and lay up treasure in heaven? Or is it just sort of like a, well, I know I should be doing something, <laughs> right? But is, is there a conscientious, deliberate intent in your heart to obey Jesus about laying up treasure in heaven? You're, you're being purposeful and deliberate about it. Then it should be followed up by discipline and diligence, right? Uh, good intentions are great, but they're really not sufficient, Paul's saying here. Right? And lots of, it's just like people with the service saying, well, yeah, I'll, I'll get around. I really want to serve God. I just can't. I just can't. I don't have time or I can't. Right? And so they say, someday I'll get to that. Sometimes it's the same thing with generosity. Well, yeah, we're just not in a position. We're just not in a position to do that. And I would suggest to you, based on this text, we read it, right? God will give you sufficiency in everything and an abundance for every good deed. I mean, I, I take that at face value, that God will give you more than you need so that you can give to advance his purposes. Right now, I will qualify that by clearly they're taking up an offering for the needy in Jerusalem. So God's going to meet their need through the generous generosity of other people because that's in God's providence. But as the general operating principle that we're supposed to be conduits of God's resources, not containers. Right. Some of you may remember years ago, I preached a message and I had popcorn seeds and cups. I stood over here and I had a small cup and I started to pour into it. And then I said, you know what our, our response in our culture is? Oh boy, there's more popcorn kernels. I better get a bigger cup. We keep getting a bigger cup to hold it rather than letting it overflow. I mean, if you live by the standards of our world, then you'll never have more than you need. I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, you'll never be fully protected against the future. I mean, you're always going to have to hold on to more because you never know what's going to happen. And the reality of it is we're not trusting God to supply, verse 10, seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We need to be dependent on God. Remind yourself that everything you have comes from God and remind yourself why you have it. He is not giving it all to you to consume upon yourself. He's giving it to you to serve him, 
to advance his purposes, to care for his people. Right? That's why he's giving it to you. And, and if your approach is like, oh, whoa, whoa, you know, keep stuffing more and more into the pockets, then, then, then you need to hear what the scriptures say, right? That, that God will start to withhold the seed because you're not sowing it. Right? You're, you're actually consuming it. And it's revealing that you're not trusting God to care for your needs. That's why it's so important. So there should be in us a constant cultivation of the diet. Go, does our go to war against the materialism of our culture? Right, look, look at eight, nine. Here's, here's the fountain that, that starts to churn, change our heart. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, you through his poverty might become rich, right? So, so here's Paul. He's going to say all this stuff about giving, and he's not doing just a Jesus juke here. Well, I'm going to throw Jesus in there. He's saying, hey, do you, do you understand this? Right? Jesus became poor so that we could become rich, so we should be ready to share, right? Because he's given to us, we should give him. Look at chapter 9, verses 6 and 10. 6 says, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you also reap bountifully. Now, let me be quick. That reaping might be in heaven, Okay, this is not, uh, you know, Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland or whoever it is saying, send me $100 and God will give you 1000 This is Jesus saying, lay up your treasure in heaven. Right? And if you really believe Jesus, you're going to be sowing bountifully. Right? You're going to go so, so, like I could, I could spend this money on something that, can rust and decay or be stolen or I can put it in heaven? What would be the faith-based wise decision at that point? Right? So focus on the promises of God, that God will increase the harvest of righteousness. And look down to verse 11. Realize that this is one of the means by which God cultivates Praise to himself. Verse 11, you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And then look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying, fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So, so here's what I just, I'll, I'll, I'll tie it all in this way, right? So, so I'm, I'm urging you to realize that the mark of a healthy Christian is generosity, right? If you are, if you are a closed fisted Christian, there's something wrong in your heart, right? If, if, if what you, what controls you is getting and hanging on to, you're not living out the ramifications of your confession of faith in Christ. And, and how do you move from, from that 
to the kind of generosity that he talks about, being eager and diligent and bountiful. You focus on what Christ did for you. He became poor so that we might be made rich. You focus on the promise of God that if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. He'll, he'll increase your harvest of righteousness. You focus on the fact that these resources can be, can be consumed or they can be transformed into occasions of thanksgiving and praise for God. Because God used your generosity to meet the needs of his people and his work. And God gets praised from it. You see God exalt. And some of us, I mean, we could, I could open probably the floor to testimony. At times in your life when you had a need and God met that need in surprising ways and the thanksgiving that welled up in your heart, what we sometimes don't realize is that we can be the instrument that provokes that thanksgiving. Right, I, I can remember, you know, back when we were, you know, we were young and getting started. There were times I had no idea. Right, I mean, we just had no idea where it was, where it was going to come from, and all of a sudden, an envelope would show up with money in it, or someone would drop off diapers because we, you know, we we're old enough that we were doing the cloth diaper thing because you can't afford the the other ones. And all of a sudden, someone drops off some diapers. And that's, I tell you, if you've done cloth diapers, that's an occasion of thanksgiving, right? I mean, that's a praise to God. I mean, we're all of a sudden somebody, because they're having an open heart and hands, ministers to you, you may not even know who it is, but God does. And you give praise to God. Do you know how many times God has used the collective giving of our church to be the conduit of blessing to people around the world where they sing praise to God because God's people have opened up their hands to meet that need? I mean, we need to think about this in terms of the real dynamics of it. Because every one of us are here tonight because Jesus was the most generous giver we could ever have. He gave his life. He's given us his righteousness. He has promised to give us all that we need for life and godliness. We stand on the ground that our God will supply all of our needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. So we should be people who live under that glorious truth and are transformed by it.